Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Okay, I mean, we went really fast through that, I know. Uh, And as I said, that was partly deliberate, partly because we have a lot to get through, and partly because I think I wanted you to feel the force of Hebrews. Hebrews is an incredibly logical book, but it's not an easy logical book. It's not like point one, now here's point two, now here's point three, and they clearly lead to one another. Like it draws from whole loads of different sources. It goes back to like it starts alluding to Psalm 2, and then it talks about something else, and then Psalm 2 comes again, and then Psalm 110, and then that comes up again later. It's just like weaving this massive picture of how incredible Christ is, but it takes us in odd directions sometimes. And, um, and Part of my concern was that I may have made it more confusing (laughs) Um, because I haven't always taken this logically through verse by verse by verse by verse. Sometimes I've tried to rearrange the argument so that you can actually see how the points lead to one another. So I've tried to do Hebrews editor's job for him uh, (laughs) whilst maintaining the the sort of the flow of it. So if I've confused you at any point, do ask questions. uh, Do come and talk during the break. It's been great talking about some particular questions that some of you have had. Um, And like I said at the beginning, my hope really is that I will give you enough tools to understand what Hebrews is trying to do so that when you go back and read these passages again, you'll go, oh yes, I see how that verse which seemed to be nothing to do with the argument is actually incredibly powerful so I hope that it will help you to understand how Hebrews is using Old Testament scripture and how you can understand it again Um, again as I said just ask if you have any particular questions as we go so um what I want to do now before lunch is I want to slow down and um, focus on just some smaller little passages rather than the whole sweep of four chapters in one go Um, and I think if anyone if I were to ask you, what do you know about Hebrews? I think one of the things people say very often is like, ooh, some difficult warnings in there. And um, that's one of the things that people are most nervous about. If I talk to people about Hebrews, like, oh, have you ever thought about reading that? They'll say, oh, I don't like, Rather like Revelation, people don't know where to start. They kind of think, oh, it's really difficult. You have this set idea about it, and so you don't quite ever open the book. <laughs> uh, I think some people feel like that about Hebrews. They think, oh, the warnings, I don't know how I can deal with them. And so I kind of want to focus on them now so that we can not get them out of the way, but so that it's not lingering over the rest of the argument, which in the afternoon I think is going to be overwhelmingly positive and optimistic. So I want to think a little bit about the warnings now. And there are various warnings in chapters 2, 3, 5, 6, 10, and 12. Um, And we're going to look particularly at one in chapter 6, which is, I think, maybe the hardest. But by the time you get to the hardest warning passages, um, the logic of Hebrews presupposes you've read the earliest chapters. So actually, when people think about chapter 6 and the difficult verses we're going to look at at a moment, it's easy to take it in isolation without thinking about all the argument that's come before. And in particular, there are two verses in Hebrews 3 that the way you interpret these verses will hugely affect the way you come to the warning passages. So I want to begin with Hebrews 3, verse 6b, the second half of that verse, and also verse 14. And uh, what I'm about to put to you now is um, my understanding, which may not be right, I don't know, Um, but it's, I've read a lot on this and there are loads of different interpretations. This is the one that I find most compelling and I don't have time to go into all of them. Uh, I think, I think there are about 14 different readings of these verses. 
I mean, separate arguments representing hundreds of different people who think those different things. Uh, I can definitely recommend um, a couple of uh, essays and chapters that will really help if you do want to get into this in more depth. Um, but otherwise, I think what I'm putting to you is a fairly uncontroversial, I hope, <laughs> uh, reading of these two verses. So, um, warnings and encouragements. Hebrews 3 verse 6 says this, We are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Hebrews 3.14 says this, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Now each of these two verses contains two elements. There is an assurance and a condition. But... It's not that simple because we need to think, well, what is the function of the condition in these sentences? I'm just going to get technical with you for a little moment, but I'll try and illustrate it as we go. There are different ways of reading conditional sentences. So a sentence that says this, if this, there are different ways of reading those kinds of sentences. One is uh, what's known as a cause-to-effect conditional. And... In a cause-to-effect conditional, essentially what you're saying is this. A particular cause leads to a particular effect. So, for example, Romans 7, verse 2, uh, talking about a, a lady, if her husband dies, cause, she is released from the law of marriage, effect. So the one action, the death of the husband, leads to the effect, the release from marriage. Do you see that? And that's quite a common way of thinking about conditionals like if this happens then this will follow from it if we read these verses as cause to affect conditionals then essentially we will read them as if to say if you persevere cause you will share in christ and so our sharing in christ whatever that means entering rest now and eternity salvation all those things relies on the cause of our perseverance so it's all about perseverance. You must persevere so that effect you experience salvation. And the implication is that if you don't persevere, you don't get to share in Christ. So that's one way of reading it. Actually, there is a second way of reading uh, conditional sentences, and the, this is an evidence-to-inference conditional. The evidence leads to the inference. So you see something, and because of what you see, the evidence there, you can infer that something else is true. Uh, and actually, we see one of these in Hebrews 12, which, um, jumping ahead, is actually one of the reasons why I lean towards this way of reading it, because you see Hebrews actually doing this uh, in the book. Hebrews 12, 8. If you are left without discipline that's the evidence, then you are illegitimate children and not sons, inference. So the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, says, if I look at you and I see you're not experiencing uh, discipline, then I can infer from that that you are not actually sons, you're illegitimate sons. So he's looking at something and saying, from that I can deduce that this is the case. And that is a different way of looking at conditional sentences. Um, let me give you some non-biblical examples. Um, when you enter a house, if you see uh, backpacks by the door and tiny little shoes and um, uh, toys strewn across the place and a mum looking exhausted and holding a nappy <laughs> that is full of something. Uh, you can infer from that evidence... Sorry? That the husband's really weird. 
well, yes, <laughs> well, that's one thing you could infer. Um, you could probably infer from the evidence that this is a house with children. children. Yeah, okay. So you look at the evidence and you infer something about it. If I were to go to my house, well, actually, I'm a bad example now because I have a child. If I were to go to Adam's house and I were to put little tiny shoes by the door and a backpack and strew toys all over the place and hand Adam a nappy full of something that my daughter had just deposited, that doesn't cause it to become a house where children are, does it? It's not a cause-to-effect kind of conditional. It's an evidence-to-inference kind of conditional. Do you see the difference? So, if we read these verses as evidence to inference conditionals, then essentially what we say is this. If we persevere, that will show, that will be the evidence that you have come to share in Christ. As in, those who persevere, we can look at them and go, wow, they were genuinely Christians. So, uh, actually, a good friend of mine, Andrew Wilson, um, do people know who he is? Some of you do. He's written um, a number of really great popular level books, but actually he's um, just recently completed his PhD and, and has written a few articles. And one of his articles is on these two verses. Um, it's a brilliant article. I can send it to you if you're interested more. But he argues that essentially these are evidence to inference conditionals. He says, The writer to the Hebrews has deliberately made a past event dependent on a future condition because perseverance in faith is a defining mark of those who are truly believers. So if we see perseverance now and into the future, that will be a sign that in the past something has happened. They have come to share in Christ. Or D.A. Carson, another brilliant scholar, who I think is spot on on this, even though I disagree with him on some of the other bits in Hebrews. I think he's great. He says, Hebrews virtually defines true believers as those who hold firmly to the end um, the confidence that they have at first. So essentially they're saying that what these verses are telling us is that our salvation doesn't depend on our perseverance. Like we don't persevere in order to become those who get saved. Rather, we have come to share in Christ past if indeed we persevere to the end. So a Christian is, by definition, someone who perseveres to the end. And the perseverance will be an indication that we were genuine believers. <laughs> no questions on this one. Uh, any questions? Any, any, any questions? No, 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 gosh. I've got nowhere to look. A question's coming from everywhere. Let's go with you. Uh, well, um, that's kind of tricky because we're in the realm of metaphor. Um, well, you have to define what persevere is. So it's not persevere in general. So if I persevere with my diet, <laughs> that's different from persevering very specifically with faith in Christ. So I can't say, oh, well, I was persevering in that area, therefore that's salvation. Like, I think he's got a very particular idea of what perseverance means here. And it means having genuine faith in Christ and persevering in that faith in Christ, not allowing yourself to be a worshiper of something else and backsliding. So I think in that sense, I don't think it's quite comparable do you, do you see what I mean? He's got a very particular idea of what perseverance means, which I think is not abandoning Christ and going to something else, walking away from him, that sort of thing. So I, I, if you persevere in that, like you're a Christian, if you're persevering in something anti-Christian, then perseverance itself is not the thing that saves you, if you see what I mean. 
Does that make any sense? Have I confused it even further? I have confused it everywhere. Okay, I'll cut that from the podcast and then no one will know. I <laughs> made it confusing. Um, Well, it means that we're looking for different things from them. So, cause to effect. Um, I'm not sure I'd say one is more certain than the other in the grand scheme of what certainty means, but it may mean that depending on your position in time, you can be more certain about something. So, if someone perseveres to the end, like right now, I don't know if someone's going to persevere to the end, so it makes it hard for me to be certain. They may look like they're persevering now, but if they don't persevere to the end, can I be certain now of what has happened in their life. So it, it's difficult. I hope this will become a bit more clear when we actually get into chapter six. So maybe let's hold that thought and then we'll get into chapter six and then come back to some of the practical implications of this. Um, Verse 14. Yep. Um, if we do not hold our original conviction firmly, yep. our original conviction being that he died for our sins, so yep. we into our life. Um, what is your opinion on our destiny? Right, we'll get to that in a minute. If I, if I, well, if I tell you the answer to that now, then uh, that will scupper chapter six. Okay. So, yeah. Um, should we go to chapter six? And hopefully this will become a bit more clear, and then we can come back to some practical things. Um, don't turn the page in your notes right now, actually, because what I want you to do is... Um, Turn the page in your Bible. Get to chapter six here. And don't look through the pages either, Elizabeth. I saw that. Um, Could someone read out Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8? Adam, go. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucified once again the Son of God to their own heart, holding him up to for land that has drunk the rain of the full life and produces a crop useful to those whose sacred is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> so, in order to understand what is going on in this passage, we need to ask a couple of questions. Um, firstly, who, is these, who are these verses talking about? Are they talking about those who are genuine believers or not? Um, and then what's the purpose of the warning? Um, and what is the warning about? So what I would like you to do, just with the people around you, um, you might want to do it in your row or just in twos, whatever. I want you to just, just for a couple of minutes, gut reaction. I'm not like, this is not to trick anyone. Um, just say, what is your gut reaction? Are these verses talking about genuine believers or something else? And what are they warning? What is the specific nature of the warning? With me? Are they talking about genuine believers or something else? And what is the specific nature of the warning? Just take two minutes just to chat between you. I'm not after full answers, just gut feels. Go for it. This is a practice of practice. 
Let's, um, let's bring it back together again. <coughs> okay. Right, I know that was like really quick. So my hope, <laughs> like I just have your attention, for it. So my hope is that you have now come to the answers yourself, and uh, we can move on. So, um, <laughs> no, here's, here's what I want: just um, simple show of hands. Um, I know that if you're anything like me, you want want to caveat everything. You want to say yes, but here's my, you know. Um, but simple show of hands. Who thinks these verses are addressed to genuine Christian believers? Or talking about genuine Christian believers? Okay. <laughs> nice. That's the kind of the jazz hands of approach. Yeah, so who thinks these, these verses are not talking about genuine Christian believers? Not everyone has put up their hands. <laughs> hands down. And who has no idea? <laughs> I'll put myself in that category. No, well, ish. Um, okay. Let me give you a couple of arguments either way. 
So some people will read these and say, these verses cannot be about genuine Christian believers. And, and you can turn over your pages now if you'd like to. Um, you probably already have, haven't you? <laughs> Cheats. Um, some people will say, these verses cannot be about genuine Christian believers um, because they seem to suggest that these people are losing their salvation. Now, some people, a minority of scholars will say, it's not talking about salvation at all, it's talking about some kind of rewards, but... I just don't think that is true, and I think we can dismiss that because actually that view really doesn't take the severity of the language here about crucifying Christ again, trampling him underfoot, etc., um, etc. Et I think it's clearly talking about salvation, entering into rest now and eternally. Um, some people say it cannot be about genuine Christian believers. Why? Because actually if you look at the whole canon of scripture, there are plenty of passages that do seem to suggest that believers cannot lose their salvation. If you're a genuine believer, you can't lose your salvation. And passages like that will be Romans 8, John 6, and uh, various other um, similar passages. So, people would argue, they therefore must be talking about something else, some other kind of person who is not a genuine Christian. And so some people will say, well, the language of having tasted of the divine gift suggests that they've maybe had a glimpse of it, but not enjoyed the full thing. So these are maybe people who have been part of community, understood something of salvation, got some good out of it, but have never actually crossed the line of faith, or however you might like to put it. And a good example of that, and D.A. Carson um, says, Hebrews recognises a kind of transitory faith, a form of conversion which, like the seed sown on rocky places, and he's referring to the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, has all the signs of life but which does not persevere. So he's saying, like the parable of the sower, it talks about, are you familiar with this, in Mark 4, there's this seed that's sown, and some of it, it starts to show like it's got life, but then the stones basically kill it out and it dies. And, and he's saying, essentially, there is a form of faith that looks like that. People may look like they're genuine Christians, but actually, over time, it's shown that they're not. And that is what is being talked about here. And I think that that's kind of helpful, and I, I, I buy some of that argument, because I do think that John, 8, uh, sorry, John 6, Romans 8, and other passages do seem to talk about salvation as being something that is secure. And I think that Mark 4 and the parable of the sower is really helpful, and maybe we'll come back to that. And I think it makes sense of the end of Hebrews 6, where it, this passage at least, where it starts talking about land producing fruit and that sort of thing. However, some people will say, no, this passage like, is talking about genuine believers. And it, to be honest, it's really hard to read it and think it's not talking about genuine believers. I think you have to stretch a little bit. So that idea of tasting the divine gift but not really having eaten the divine gift or something, I kind of get the metaphor, but later in Hebrews, it says Jesus tasted death. And you don't get the impression that he just had a little taste and then went, no, I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> like, he fully embraced death. He had to, otherwise his sacrifice isn't complete. So the idea of... But in that context, you could, you could interpret death as being physical death, or if you take the unpopular catastrophism um, of Jesus going to the grave with his sin, like with the world's sin, that was not taste. Yes, no, I, it definitely. There are different ways of... of um, you know, my argument doesn't fully rest on that. that. I, but I just think, actually... Taking the metaphor of tasting isn't, it doesn't seal the deal, I think. Actually, I would struggle to see any way that the author of Hebrews could be more clear that this is about Christians. I mean, all the language there about 
like being brothers and having experienced this thing. I mean, the, the key thing for me, they're brothers who receive knowledge of the truth, have been sanctified, and then outrage the spirit of grace. And, and it seems to be that these people have experienced something of the Holy Spirit. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. I don't think you can get more clear in biblical terms about someone who is a Christian than saying they've shared in the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about Acts 10 for a moment. You've got this, uh, this scenario where people are they're preaching the gospel, and the gospel is going out to the Jewish people, and then there's this weird moment where they're preaching and some Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And the, 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 the apostles are like, what is going on here? What do we do? Should we baptize them? Should we not? Are, are they even allowed to like, become Christians? Is that allowed? And they say, well, they've received the Spirit. And so if they've received the Spirit, of course they're Christians. Like, we have to baptize them. And so it seems like receiving the Spirit is like the mark of being a Christian. And so in that sense, like, I don't know how much more strongly the author could be saying these guys are genuine believers. So, I lean towards yes. But, typically, people who answer no um, would argue that believers, true believers, cannot lose their salvation. People that answer, you know, that this is genuinely about believers, would typically say, and this passage means that believers can lose their salvation. However, there is a way of reading it, which is um, fairly common, and I think quite compelling, that says both that these passages are directed at genuine believers, but we can also be certain that a genuine believer cannot lose their salvation. From passages like Romans 8, John 6, etc., And the way to get to that is to say, what do the warnings achieve? What is the purpose of the warnings in the context of Hebrews? And I would say that the warnings are actually the means by which the author and God behind him intend to bring about the very perseverance that will take them away from the danger they are possibly facing. Let me read this paragraph, see if it helps. Uh, Andrew Wilson says... The warnings are a means of preserving God's people in faith to the end. This causes him, which is the author, both to urge perseverance and warn against apostasy, falling away, in the strongest possible terms, and to have confidence that the readers will heed his warnings if they have, in fact, become partners with Christ. Since he sees the warnings um, are God's way of preventing the readers from apostasy. Let me try and unpack what is going on in in that paragraph and what I think is going on here. When we think about these warnings, they create a sense of fear in us, or at least they should. I mean, if we read them right, like, we, we should feel a sense of fear, yeah? But fear is not always a negative thing. There is a positive form of fear and a negative form of fear. There is a fear that paralyzes you, and there is a fear that encourages you to live a particular way. So, for example, if I were driving and I had no sense of fear about anything at all, I would be an awful driver and you would not want to be on the road with me. There is a sense in which fear is essential to me being a good and safe driver. However, it's essential that the kind of fear I am experiencing is not the paralyzing fear, but the fear that makes you take the act seriously and act safely, yeah? So fear of crashing, fear of causing harm to others is a wholly reverent fear that makes you live, act, drive in a particular way. Let me give you a further example. Imagine if you were walking along a cliff edge and you saw a sign and it said, keep away from the edge of the cliff 
if you fall, you will die. <laughs> now, if you were to apply the, the kind of questions that we apply to this passage to that sign and say, well, is the, is the warning genuine? What do you think? Is it genuine? Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. <clears throat> but what is the effect of the warning? It stops me going over the edge of the cliff, right? Because the risk is genuine, the risk is real, but the sign itself is the thing that stops me experiencing the effect of going over the edge of the cliff. The sign is actually a means of preserving me. Do you see where I'm going with this? Let me give you another example, this one from Scripture. Acts chapter 27, I find this quite helpful. Uh, In Acts 27, you've got the story of Paul, uh, who is on a ship in a storm, and an angel tells him that everyone in the ship is going to survive, they will be saved. So he has this confidence that the people will be saved, and yet he warns the people to stay on the ship if they are to be saved. So Paul's warning is very real. Like, if you get off the ship, there's no guarantee of salvation. The warning is genuine, but his confidence that the people will be saved if they heed the warning means that he, he's, he's peaceful about the situation and his warning actually becomes the means by which the people stay on the ship and experience salvation in the midst of the storm. Do you see the point? So I would say that, and, and many scholars would say this, that the warnings in Hebrews here are warnings like that. He is not saying that any of you people are currently in the place of apostasy like i think that's really important to notice he has not at any point said i think any of you have gone too far and salvation is out of your reach he is saying actually i think you're genuine believers but you are in danger of something there is a genuine danger akin to getting off the ship or falling over the edge of a cliff and i so do not want you to do that because without christ there is no hope And so I give you this warning in the strongest possible terms so that my warning might bring about in you the very perseverance that keeps you on the ship of faith, as it were, and keeps you safe to the end, keeps you persevering so that it will be clear that you had indeed come to faith in Christ. Now that's kind of complex, but do you sort of see see the logic? I find that the most compelling Um, way of reading these passages because it does a few things to me. One, it makes sense of the fact that I do see in other passages like Romans 8 and John 6 and plenty of other places in scripture, Ephesians, just this security of salvation for genuine believers. There is a confidence that comes from reading the New Testament that makes me think if someone is genuinely in Christ, nothing can take me out of his hands. So this way of reading Hebrews makes sense of what I see in the rest of Scripture, but also it makes me take the warning seriously because I think, well, actually, without Christ, there is nothing else. There is no other hope. And so I want to take that warning seriously. And if someone is saying to me, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I need Jesus anymore, I want to bring the kind of warning like this, not to scare people in an unhealthy sense, but to help them to realize without Christ, there is nothing. And hoping that this warning might actually be the very thing that keeps them persevering, thus showing that they are saved. Um, One, just one final Yeah, well, one, I'll give you one little bit and then I'll take the question and then I'll try and clarify this further. I think, though, that D.A. Carson's point about Mark 4 is really important. And I do think that there is a category of people who do look like the seed on rocky soil. 
And because I want to fit Hebrews with my understanding of the whole of Scripture, I have to go to Romans 8 and John 6 and Mark 4. And I think there are many people who seem to start out uh, looking as if they are Christians, and it may prove over time that they never were. Uh, and 1 John talks about that as well, people who were with us but not actually with us, and they've gone out from us, and the fact that they've gone out shows that they never were with us properly in the first place. And I think there is a category of person for whom that is true. I just don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's how Hebrews is wanting to make that kind of argument. Um, and I can take that further in just a moment, but let me, I'll go to Tim first. I think what you're saying makes sense. I just... Good. <laughs> Great, let's move on. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. My, my only thought, question is, in the example with, a, with a, someone that's a Christian who describes, they come to you, they say, oh, maybe Jesus isn't for me, mm. and you bring him to this verse in an encouraging way. If they still say, yeah, they're already, remember, this person's already a Christian, they still say, actually, it's not for me, then isn't that someone who was in faith, Yes and no. Um, I think I would say a few things. Oh, sorry. So the question was... um, Yeah, the fact that I can't repeat it means I wasn't listening. So you're saying, if someone's... (laughs) I was just thinking about something else. I think Arsenal game is starting in a minute. um, uh, So you're saying, if someone comes to you and and they say, uh, I've been a genuine Christian, but now I'm turning away, like, are they losing their salvation? Well, yeah, but using your example, because mm. you said you'd bring them to this passage mm. and say, mm. you know, encourage them yeah. using this passage, but then if they still turn away... Yeah. Gotcha. So I'd say a few things on this. Um, And I know that what is going on in each of our minds right now is we are both thinking about ourselves, like, oh gosh, I don't want that to happen to me, what about if it does? Or we're thinking there have been times in my past where I've been like that person. Or we're thinking about our family members, uh, past or present, and we're thinking, but what about my friend who right now started so well? And, and, And our mind goes to a whole load of different people. And so what I really want to avoid, and I want to stress this very clearly, is I don't want to treat this like a puzzle to be solved when I know that people are in the mix and in our hearts and in our minds. So if any of this comes across as cold, hard logic chopping, that's not my point, uh, that's not my purpose, because people matter, and people's salvation matter, and people experiencing rest matters. And actually, that's why Hebrews is so emphatic on this, because people matter enough that this guy is, is going to use language that is horrific in order to draw people back because he so loves them. So, um, so, so many of us are now thinking about our friends and neighbours and family members and maybe those who have even died and you've got questions about that. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that. This is not just a logical thing, it's a personal thing. Um, And I think what I would say is this. Actually, um, the gift of assurance that the Bible talks about is more something we know about ourselves and it's less something that we know about others. So I don't think the point of many of the assurance passages are... um, to make us feel that we can look into someone else's heart and know where they're going, what their eternal destiny is. I think they're meant to challenge us to know where our eternal destiny is. And we have some hints. So, chapter 3, if the person perseveres to the end, I think I can say, well, yeah, on the basis of what I say, uh, I see there, it looks to me like they have shared in Christ. And so I can make a bit of a judgment, but in the moment, if I'm talking to my friend who's come to me and said, I was a genuine Christian and now I'm not, but I don't know a number of things. One, whether they were genuine Christians. Um, although often I might think, 
Yeah, I, I'm, and I think they really are. I've seen enough fruit. I see that they sort of fit the Hebrew 6 description uh, enough to say I think they're a genuine Christian. I also don't know where they're going to go from here to the end of their lives. So my warning in that moment may be the very thing that gets them to go, man, actually, I really do need to take this seriously. But that process may be instantaneous. It may take 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It may not happen to their deathbed. I don't know. I may not have assurance. They may not have assurance. In fact, I think part of the point of this is that if you are actively choosing to walk away from God, you will not have assurance. Like, we kind of get the idea that someone might be, well, I was a Christian once, I'm going to decide not to be a Christian now. Um, But when I was a Christian, I believed that I would always be saved. So if I'm now not a Christian, I will also still be saved. Like, we kind of sometimes just think that people think like that. Actually, I think if people have walked away from Christ, they give up their sense of assurance. That may not mean that they've given up salvation because God may bring them back. But it means all the while they are walking away from God, they don't feel that surety in the heart. I'm a child of God. By the Spirit of God, I say, Abba, Father, and I know closeness with him. I think they surrender something of their assurance, even if ultimately God may still bring them back. And so I think what Hebrews is doing is not trying to say, here is the whole doctrine of salvation in one go, let me answer every one of your questions. He's addressing people in a very specific circumstance and saying, you need to repent. It's not too late for you. I know you're genuine Christians, and I know that by the means of this warning, God is going to draw you back to himself. And the reason I think that is because of what he then says next. And let's go to that, and I'm... I'll come back and I know there are probably other questions, so I'm not going to ignore those. But I think it's really important not just to let the warning passage stand alone. Because then in verses 9 to 12, he says this. He says um, all this stuff. And then he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, such a warmth, such a compassion. This is not just a logical puzzle for him. Dear friends. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So after the warning passage, he says, the reason I speak like this, in words that you almost get a sense that it pains him to use some of this language, he says, the reason I say these things is because I am confident you do not have to be like that that is not your fate that is not your destiny I am confident that you will heed my warning that you will persevere because of this warning and by persevering you will be shown to be those who are genuine Christians so there is a real confidence that comes through in the author I I think it's confidence in the power of the warning um, and in the power of the warning to bring the people back to Christ and to stop them going over the cliff edge which it looks like they're on trajectory to do does that make sense? And, and I think the confidence doesn't stop there either. It carries on. And so in a moment, I want to look at what he says even next, which I think builds the confidence further. But um, any more questions at that point? I want to just make a comment. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I, I shall. <laughs> I actually thought that um, I, read, I do generally read 4 to... Yeah, four to eight yep. has been talking about those who aren't genuine Christians. Mm. Um, and I'll just try and articulate that. So I definitely affirm the verses that you mentioned in Romans and Ephesians and the like that yep. make it clear that, um, yeah. you know, that you can't lose your salvation. 
I think the reason for that actually is because God sovereignly decides mm. who is and sure. isn't saved. And so the that you know that's something God decides and, and therefore it's not perspective like the reason why you can't do some, your salvation is because God gave you and God made that decision. Yeah. So with that as like a found a foundation, um, I find it interesting that it, like personally I think that it's talking to the body of people, mm. not like not obviously individuals, but yeah. some of these Jewish Christians who have a way, they're also people, part of that, that yes. collection of people. Yes. Um, and then he uses the term enlightened. Yes. He uses the term salvation here. Yeah. It uses the term enlightened. Yep. And also in 1032 when he talks about mm. those who've been recently enlightened. But I, mm. I take this as more a head knowledge. So I, I feel like this is saying for those who have, mm. who have been told about the gospel, yeah. who have received information in their minds yeah. about the good news, yep. and have been part of that church community, but after all of that, yes. have then fallen away, he's then saying it's impossible for them to come back. And I think the way I interpret that is what he's saying is. For the people who looked like that, mm. they were never saved. Sure. And actually, the act of them going away is when God, through the purpose of them not being saved, mm. hardens their hearts. Yeah. And then, I, so I agree, I agree with you with the warning, and the purpose of the warning is to say, yeah. do not behave like those people, because that is your identity. Yes. And behaving like that is just simply not in recognition of yes. your of you as a, as a Christian. Yes, yes. Um, but not so much because you would lose so much like that, yeah. but just because that isn't the purpose of what has to be. Sure, and sure. And I understand that, and, and I think um, that is a very coherent position, and um, and I have probably helped, well, I've definitely held that in the past. Um, my response to it is that's putting a lot of emphasis on one word, enlightened, and taking the emphasis off what I think is like the most clear way of expressing so, things, sorry, which is the spirit. Really, so. I, I realize I missed my main point, which is the reason why I think that more. <laughs> Yeah. So when it says, for land that construct the rain often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those who say it's cultivated, yes. it's the best of God. But if it bears thorns and thistle, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Yes. So it is the land. Yeah. And I find, what I find really, the reason why I think this makes the previous verses, to me, read more like talking to the non-Christians, is it uses the word end. Sure, yeah. It's purpose. So not, not an effect as a result of a, of a behaviour, but it's saying, so there's this lamp that has drunk the rain, it's received the information, it's yes. possible, and for the purpose of producing a producing crop, which will, be, which will be blessed. But if after receiving that, it bears thorns and thistles, it's near to be cursed, that's the behaviour. Yes. Saying, but its end is to be burned. Uh, yeah, so. Sure, so I come back to that on a couple of points. I think you are therefore reading end as purpose rather than a chronological or time thing. Right. Actually, um, many of the translations say, in the end it will be burned rather than its end, its purpose, its right. goal. And uh, again, I, I will look it up in the Greek um, uh, whether it is goal, telos. Uh, purpose um, or something similar or, or whether it is chronological but I, I think it's saying in the end like actually at judgment in the final result will be it's being burnt rather than its purpose is to be burnt I mean I think um, I, I the warning is the, yes it's the, the purpose of the warning that matters perhaps more than the it is although I think um I think it is. Yeah, it's also important to recognise it. I think, and, and my my other responses would be. And in fact, I got put it in the notes, but I didn't say it. But um, one of the other reasons I think this is talking about genuine believers is because in chapters two, four, ten, and twelve, 
the author includes himself in four of the five minor warnings, and you don't get the sense that the author thinks he's maybe not a Christian. Like, like he seems to be that he's saying this is true of all of us. I'd also respond to, and I think you're it's spot on to say that this is addressing a crowd rather than an individual, and that's hugely important. So if I was standing up in front, even in front of you guys, who I don't know all of you, I wouldn't want to say, I am confident that in your case, like all of you, this will end in salvation, because I don't know you all. I know many of you, um, but I know all of you. And so being able to declare to a crowd something is, is difficult. So the way you respond to an individual in a crowd is different. And, and I do think that within a crowd, there will be some who are genuinely not Christians and, and, and that sort of thing. So I think pastorally, like the way you use the warnings is different. Um, but but I, I, I do think, like, I don't know what he could have said to have made you think, like, any more clearly than what he has said this is a genuine believer. Like, I, for me, the sharing of the Holy Spirit is so emphatically, like, that is in 1 Corinthians 12 or Acts 10 or various other people, that is, the, or Romans 8 or like, Ephesians 2, like, that is effectively the description of a Christian is one who partakes in the Spirit. Um, so I would struggle to see how he could make it any more about a Christian. But as I say, that is a logical, coherent position, and I... I well, I do disagree, but I don't disagree and think you're necessarily wrong. I, I, yeah. Let's look at the next bit, because I think this is really important for just sort of sealing this up, really. Because in, in 9 to 12, he has talked about this confidence. Uh, we are confident of better things. And, and that just makes me think, why? <laughs> like, why are you confident? Um, because you read a passage like that and you think, I don't have much confidence. Like, I, that sounds pretty difficult, pretty dire. Now, obviously, he's confident because he knows the people, and I don't know the people he's particularly writing to, and maybe if I did, I'd be confident as well. But it seems like his confidence is not actually in the people, it's in something else. And so, if you read 6 verses 13 to 20, I think this helps us to understand um, both why he can issue this warning and think that the warning is going to draw people back to salvation but also actually what Adam has said that that ultimately salvation rests on God and his election and his choice Um, this is why I think we can tie those things together so could someone read to me um, not to me, to us um, chapter 6 verses 13 to 20 So we get to this passage where um, two things happen. One, he says, so I've got this confidence, and then he unpacks why he's got the confidence. And the second thing that happens is he goes, ah, yeah, I've got to Abraham, which makes Graham happy. And because uh, he's like, Abraham's better than Moses. And he oh, now finally he's got to Abraham, like the father of faith. You'd think he'd get there earlier, but now he brings him in for a particular reason. 
And you think, this is going to be a passage about Abraham. You know what strikes me? It's not really about Abraham at all. It's actually about God, this whole passage. It seems like he's about to bring Abraham in as an example of faithfulness. I mean, he says, verse 15, Abraham waited patiently. Actually, we know that Abraham waited for approximately 25 years for the birth of Isaac. And if you sort of compare Genesis 12 and 21, you can see that gap. And actually, he never fully saw the promise that he was waiting for. I mean, he saw Isaac, but the whole promise was bigger than one kid. It was about, like, the stars, uh, you know, offspring as numerous as the stars and the the sand on the shore, and say, this is going to bless all the nations. He never fully saw that. And in Hebrews 11, it picks that up, and it says, by faith he was looking, but he never actually saw... But it doesn't nullify the fact he was still living by faith and is to be commended for that. So Abraham is faithful and he waited patiently for 25 years. Actually, he did some stupid stuff during that time as well. I mean, he, um, like he tried to kickstart the promises by sleeping with like, Hagar. And, and, and then he, oh, well, I, I've been thinking recently. I mean, he's, yeah, he's an idiot in some cases. Like, li- literally the same passage, like Genesis 12. He gets this promise and then what does he do? He goes to a- Egypt and he's like, oh man, these people might think that my wife is hot and kill me and take her and so pretends she's his sister and like that's insane it's it's essentially like pimps his wife out to get him out of a difficult situation and then in chapter 20 he does it again and in chapter 20 he says I do this everywhere I go and you're like seriously (laughs) where's the faith like like everywhere you go for a period of like 40 years you've done that this is insane um so Abraham is he does some really odd stuff and yet he is the father of faith which gives me courage not because I've ever done that but because um, uh, although weirdly enough actually in the office where I work my wife works there as well um, she's on maternity leave at the moment but um, we uh, for years we would go in this is utterly irrelevant but I'll give it to you anyway um, uh, we would go in and, um, and people would just say hi to us the guys on reception who aren't you know the reception for the whole building and um, and then eventually like after years they said oh you're married. We thought you were brother and sister. <laughs> what was the clue? The holding hands, the having a baby together. With the, I don't know, that's, uh, oh, that's really weird. They had to go on Facebook and, like, they Facebook stalked us and saw a wedding photo and were like, oh! <laughs> it's just slightly weird. But um, why did I tell you that? Oh, Abraham. Yeah. So. <laughs> I just wanted to get that off my chest. Um, now, Abraham, like, father of faith, and yet he did so many silly things. And he waited patiently for 25 years, but he also did some stupid things while he was waiting. And so, actually, the point of the passage is, it's not about his waiting and the manner in which he waited, which was not always great. Actually, the passage is not really about Abraham. It's about God. It's about God making these promises. And despite humankind's best efforts to pimp out your wife to break the promises, like, God still brings the promises about. So he waited patiently for 25 years. Why did he persevere? Well, because of the promises of God. And it says that men swear by someone greater than themselves. Actually, if you look in Genesis 14, 21, 24, um, you'll find various times where Abraham makes oaths. He swears by God. He swears by someone greater than himself. But then Hebrews um, goes a bit further than that. He says, well, essentially God's purpose is unchanging. Like he doesn't change his mind. Even when Abraham does ridiculous things, he doesn't change his mind. And so God makes a promise to us. Verse 17, it's like he wanted the people who he's promised to to know these promises are never going to change. And so what God does is he swears as well. And he thinks, I'm going to swear so that people know I'm serious about this, but people have to swear by people who are greater than themselves. And like, they don't see many of those people around. So, so God swears by the most secure, unchanging thing there possibly is. He swears by himself. And actually, there may be something significant in the order of events. This is 
maybe a little speculative, but some commentators do go there and they say that in Genesis 15, God made this promise. He promised that you will have kids and um, they will become a nation through whom all the world will be blessed. Um, And then Abraham went through the period of waiting and testing and there was the testing of the sacrifice of Isaac. And it was actually only after the sacrifice of Isaac that then God made the oath with the splitting of the animal and walking between it and makes the covenant in Genesis 22. So it seems like there's a promise and then a period of testing and then like something that gives you greater confidence. And it may be that Hebrews is alluding to that here because that's a sort of parallel of their situation, that through the testing, they become more convinced of the certainty of the promises of God. That might be why he's alluding to that. We don't really necessarily know. But what we do know is that God has sworn by himself, which means that his promise is never going to be broken. To break the promises of God is to break the very character of God, um, which cannot be done. And so then verse 18, it says, we who have fled, let me just find it, um, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And there's this sense of the Christian both having fled something, some maybe it's like the exodus, maybe it's like getting out of slavery. We fled to take hold of it. We've not fully taken hold of it yet. And there's this sense of being in the in-between. Like we do live now as people who are between two worlds. Um, we are not, we have not fully taken hold of the thing to which we've been called. We've been called to an eternal salvation and it's, we've not fully taken hold of it yet. We're in that kind of running period. Um, but But we are running towards something, and verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And this is getting into what we'll pick up after lunch. But we have a hope as an anchor for our souls. Interestingly, maybe this is irrelevant, I think the only other time in the New Testament where the anchor is used, the word anchor is used, is in Acts 27 bit that I used as an analogy earlier about Paul saying, um, stay on the ship and you'll be saved, Uh, get off the ship and you won't, and having that confidence. Maybe there's something going on there, I don't know, Um, might be a bit speculative, but we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. We have a certain hope, and the basis of our certainty, the basis of the certainty of our hope is not in us and our ability to keep God's covenant, his law, to stay faithful, to persevere. Even though perseverance is the sign of what a genuine Christian is, our hope, our anchor is Jesus Christ himself and the promises of God who swore by himself since there is nothing stronger than himself to swear by. And actually I think the metaphor of an anchor is really powerful and really helpful because an anchor is used to keep a ship steady in storms, in difficult times, when the waters are moving. And you actually, you carry an anchor all the time. You have an anchor on the boat. And most of the time, it doesn't actually make a difference. But when you go through the storms, you put down the anchor, and then it really comes into its own. And I think that's important for this book, but it's also important for our lives as well. That having an anchor for our souls, having Jesus, who is the embodiment of our hope, the one who takes all the promises and all of them are yes and amen in him, doesn't mean the storms go away, so we therefore have no need for the anchor. Rather, it means in the midst of the storms, we put down the anchor and that holds us firm. And I think the point of that is clear in this passage, where people are being tempted and tested and uh, given opportunities to go away from Christ in the storms of life, 
Whatever the pressure is, whether it's internal pressure from their own doubts or longings for comfort or whatever it happens to be, whether it's external pressure through the threat of persecution, which up to this point has been strong, has not yet resulted in martyrdom, but within a few short years would, whether it's pressure from others, whether it's social pressure, whatever the storms are, we have an anchor, and it's that that gives us hope. It's Jesus that gives us hope. And it's Jesus as the anchor that keeps us persevering. Our faith doesn't ultimately rest on our ability to keep his promises, but God's ability to keep his promises. So, what do we do with the warnings? Well, I think we should treat them like the book treats them. Uh, We should take them seriously. But we should take also overwhelmingly seriously the incredible promises of hope and certainty that this book contains. The certainty that comes through the promises of God. And so if we read this letter in such a way that causes us to focus on the warnings and think uh, that they are primarily telling you, or the main message of Hebrews is, you better watch yourself in case you lose your salvation. What that does is it makes us look into ourselves. It makes us introspective. And that is the exact opposite of what Hebrews wants to do. He wants us to lift our eyes and to look to Jesus. I mean, we get that here at the end of this chapter. We see it later on. Uh, It uses metaphors of running the race, fixing your eyes on him. Actually, Thomas Schreiner, um, a commentator, he he says, um, take the running metaphor. And this I find quite helpful. He says, take the running metaphor, which he does actually pick up in Hebrews chapter 12. And he says, what gives you encouragement when you're running in the race and not sure if you're going to get there is someone standing on the sidelines and going, come on, you can do it. You can see the finish line. You can do it. I believe in you, that sort of thing. What doesn't help is someone going really running a race right now (laughs) and he says that's equivalent to what people do with the warning passages they think oh am i really a christian am i really a christian and it gets you introspective whereas actually what these warnings are meant to do is make you think you don't want to go away from christ because he is supreme without him we have no hope rather fix your eyes on christ and keep running the hebrews is like the guy shouting from the side of the running track saying keep running you can do it the end is in sight jesus has gone before you he is the anchor he is the anchor for your soul Okay, I'm sure you will have more questions on that. Some of them theological, some of them practical, some of them personal. Very happy to talk about those um, over lunch, but we should take lunch. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.